1: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Trent Masiki, who is the author of the book The Afro-Latino Memoir: Race, Ethnicity, and Literary Interculturalism, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Masiki, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Reagan. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. Um, And I wanted to start with you as the author. And so the book, uh, The Afro-Latino Memoir, examines the relations between Afro-Latinos and African-Americans through the lens of memoir. And so I wondered if you could just tell us about yourself, um, anything about your background and how you came to write this book.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, I've lived and taught in New England for nearly half my life at this point but I was uh, born and raised uh, in the deep South and um, my scholarly interest in Afro-Latino and African-American interculturalism is kind of rooted in my uh, personal background Uh, as someone who's half Ugandan and half African-American. You know, I've always um, been fascinated by these uh, cross-cultural relationships between African-Americans and other Afro-ethnic communities in the U S. So, you know, that's kind of how my personal interest kind of, Um, alliance with my scholarly interest. And uh, background as far as like uh, credentials, uh, I have a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science from Southern University and HBCU uh, in Louisiana, my home state. Um, A Master's in English from Texas A&M University, an MFA in Creative creative Writing from uh, Emerson College, and uh, an MA and a PhD in Afro-American Studies from UMass Amherst.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow, that is fascinating. Um, I I like that uh, you brought your your background into it, because this topic is also close to my heart, and that I'm very interested in these relationships. I I am African American, but I'm interested in these relationships between African Americans and other ethnic groups, um, which is one thing that really interested me in your book. And so, you know, in the book, Uh, You argue, and I'm quoting you, that Afro-Latino coming-of-age memoirs written in the post-segregation era expand not only on what is meant and has meant to be Latino in the U.S., but also what it means it has meant to be African-American. And so I wondered if you can expand on this argument that you're making in the book and and just give us a sense of who you're referring to with the term Afro-Latino.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. So in this project, I use... Afro, the term Afro-Latino to describe U.S. citizens uh, and or U.S. residents who either have like ethnic or national roots in the Spanish-speaking regions and countries of Latin America, the Caribbean, and and North America. And I understand and use um, the terms Latino and Afro-Latino in the same way um, that scholars like Agustin Lamontes, Juan Flores, and Miriam Jimenez-Ramon. William uh, Lewis Silvio Torres Sayon and uh, Martha Caminero Santa Angelo, you know, understand and use those terms. And the term Latino in the U.S. is is often used as a way is often used in a way that kind of either marginalizes or erases the African contribution to Latino history, culture, and um, personhood. But in the like late nineties and early two thousands the term uh, Afro-Latino gained a lot more popularity and uh, currency among scholars in the kind of general public. And so, um, you know, that's, I think, what we're seeing now, particularly after the um, 2010 publication of uh, Juan Flores and Miriam Jimenez, just Ramon's uh, book, The Afro-Latino Reader, you just saw this explosion, you know, of scholarship focusing on the Afro-Latino experience. And I think their scholarship... In general, and then that book in particular inspired um, emerging scholars like myself, you know, who started our doctoral, um, entered our doctoral programs in and around 2011. Um, so that's, you know, kind of like how I understand the term and, you know, the influences and the people, the scholars that have uh, influenced my work. And you're talking about expanding. So what I mean by expand um I think these memoirs, the Afro-Latino coming-of-age memoirs, they expand what it means to be Latino because they unsettle that notion I was just talking about um, as Latino being someone who is like of mestizo descent, someone who's like solely um, a combination of Spanish and indigenous heritage. And I think these same memoirs, the Afro-Latino memoir, expands what it means to be African-American um, because they show or they demonstrate that Black identity uh, in the U.S. is more interculturally uh, entangled and ethnically diverse, then it's typically represented like in the popular imagination and popular culture. So um, that's the work that I think that the, um, that the book and the term uh, is doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Um, and you look at, you know, a series of memoirs in the book, and we're, we're going to talk about, you know, a couple of them. But, you know, one of the things you examine in the book are cultural tropes that overlap between Afro-Latinos and African-Americans. And I was I was fascinated because you write about this idea of like a literary ancestry. Um, and so you look at it, for example, in Piri Thomas's memoir. And so I wondered um, what is a literary and what is literary ancestry and how did Afro-Latinos assert it with African-Americans?
0: So, literary ancestry is a, um, uh, a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that was developed by the novelist uh, Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. And he used this metaphor uh, to describe his theory of literary influence. And he develops this idea. You can find it in two essays. Um, it's in his uh, essay collection, Shadow and Act. And he mentions or he talks about this uh, concept of literary relatives and literary ancestors. in on uh, one essay that's called The World in the Jug and then another one, uh, Hidden Name and Complex Fate. And he wrote these two essays. Uh, he wrote the first one in December of 1963 and he wrote the second one uh, in January of 1964. And so he makes this distinction between literary relatives and literary ancestors and relatives for Ellison or novelists uh, who are either like his peers or his competitors, you know, like his equals or his rivals. And ancestors are novelists that he considers who are more talented than he is. You know, novelists from whom, you know, he can learn something about the world, himself, and the craft of writing. And uh, so he has this quote, and it's a quote that I use on uh, page 38 of the book. While one can do nothing about choosing one's relatives, one can, as artists, choose one's ancestors. And so Ellison, you know, in um, the first essay, The World in a Jug, he claims. Um, Richard Wright and Langston Hughes as literary relatives, Um, but he claims Ernest Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, Andre Malraux, Dostoevsky, and uh, William Faulkner as ancestors. So there's a a racial element, uh, I guess, to that as well, between the distinction between relatives and ancestors. So I chose that Concept and you know it's a concept that's really part of uh, African American literary studies because it really um, demonstrates the relationship between Piri Thomas and John Oliver Killens. You know, Peary Thomas read John Oliver Killens' novel, Young Blood, when Thomas, when he Piri Thomas was incarcerated, um, and that novel it just it changed his life. He he read it and he's like, "This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to write," and he started writing his uh, manuscript. Um, the manuscript that would become down these mean streets in jail. And when he got out uh, of, of prison and he found, and he had this opportunity, got the opportunity to turn the manuscript into a book. Uh, he sought out John Oliver Killens, who was one of the five, mem- five founding members of the Harlem Writers Guild. And he joined the guild, Thomas did, and became tight, very, very close friends with Killens. And Killens helped promote his work um, in magazines like Negro Digest. Um, So that's another longer story to that part, that particular issue of Negro Digest in which uh, Killens wrote the the very glowing essay of Down These Mean Streets. That was the January 1968 issue of Negro Digest, which was devoted to theorizing the black aesthetic. So right at the very, you know, um, moment when the black aesthetic is being conceptualized and theorized, uh, you have this Afro-Latino presence in that in that uh, in that literary journal.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's so important. I think with the book because one of the things you're doing is making, uh, inserting Afro Latinos there at these at these critical moments um, to to give us a sense that they didn't just appear you know 10 years ago or something. They they've you know they've they've been there contributing uh, culturally and literarily um, for for quite some time. Uh, so that was something I really appreciated about the book um, and the you know that archival work that you were doing. Um, and I think too, so you, you give us this like overarching idea to understand the relations between Afro-Latino writers and African-Americans. And I really wanted to foreground this because it seems like one of one of the critical contributions of the book, uh, which is this idea of ethno-racial apprenticeship. And it means, quote, and I'm quoting you, the intersectional process of ethnic and racial social, socialization that we each experience as individuals as we come of age in our homelands. And so I wondered if you could talk about um, this idea of ethno-racial apprenticeship and how you see it unfolding um, with these memoirs.
0: I so I chose that term um, ethno-racial apprenticeship because it um, it connects to this idea of the coming of age narrative or the coming of age you know novel, but also coming of age memoirs, because the coming of age novel another another name for the coming of age novel is the apprenticeship novel, and so. And by apprenticeship, you know, in this type of life writing or that type of uh, coming of age narrative arc, you know, it charts a, a protagonist's growth from childhood to adulthood. And so you see this kind of elect- intellectual, emotional, psychological, professional, artistic maturity, maturation, you know, from uh, childhood to adult, how they come into their into themselves. So that's one of the reasons uh you know i chose that that concept of apprenticeship because it matched the actual genre that i'm writing about so the memoirs that i write about are coming-of-age narratives and each of the writers explores the uh the trauma of the racial identity crisis that they experienced in their formative teenage and young adult years and for afro-latino writers their understanding of what Afro-Latino writers in the US, you know, their understanding of what it means to be black, you know, here in America is deeply influenced um, by their African-American peers, their teachers, their mentors, uh, romantic partners, as well as their engagement with African-American, you know, music, literature, religion, history, and culture. And so their racial identity um, to add to that, their racial identity is intersectional because it's also influenced by their gender, their sexuality, and the kind of historical period and geographical region, region uh, in which they're born. So for me, that's you know what ethno-racial apprenticeship speaks to. It speaks to this fact that we're racially and ethnically socialized in our formative years, um, but the, a similar process also occurs no matter what age we are. Uh, when we immigrate to another country and we have to learn the, um, the ethnic and the racial logic and grammar of that particular country. And that was something that was uh, important for me to learn and experience when I was, um, I spent a year, me and my family spent a year in Panama when I um, um, was there as a Fulbright scholar. So, um that's why I think those those two things are, are are bound. We each are socialized in the countries that we grew up into, but if we also immigrate to another country, you have to kind of redo that process as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like this process of continual change and flow. Um, definitely taking on those influences that you're that you're confronting in the moment. Um, and you and you talk about these interactions and relations between these two groups. Um, But there are there weren't always like these like utopian moments, you know, they weren't they weren't all smooth and free from tension. And um, between Afro Latinos and African Americans. And for example, you talk about in Marta Moreno Vegas memoir, which I think is when the spirits Uh, Dance Mambo. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, She writes about her sister's relationship, you know, with an African-American. And, um, and so that's just one example, but I wondered, can you, can you talk about some of the tensions um, in this relation between African-Americans and Afro Latinos, you know, as you saw them in these memoirs?
0: Yeah. So that's a great one to uh, start with. Uh, So Chachita's Vegas sister was supposed to uh, spend seven weeks at a summer camp working as a counselor. And instead of going to summer camp, uh, what she did was spend seven weeks with her secret boyfriend and that secret boyfriend was uh, Joe Singleton. And he was a a light skinned unemployed African-American man. And the important thing to know about Vega's family, uh, about her parents, is that they were uh, socially and ethnically uh, conservative. And, And that's to say that they wanted their daughters to only date men whom the daughters intended to marry. They were traditional in that respect, and additionally, they wanted those men. And here I'm gonna, you know, quote from the um from the book um from that particular chapter. I think it's on page 96. They wanted those men to be light skinned, have good hair, come from a good family, and be Puerto Rican. So Vega's parents felt betrayed and um, dishonored. You know, when they discovered that Chachita had lied to them and spent the summer, you know, in a romantic relationship now in defending her actions uh vega's sister you know tried to stress the fact that joe was just as light-skinned as they were but her parents um and she thought that their parents would be more upset about you know her dating someone who was dark-skinned rather than someone who was uh not puerto rican um and so she was trying to kind of offset uh, or defend herself with uh, the claim that he was just as light as they were but that you know, was not the only problem. The problem that he was, that he was not Puerto Rican was the bigger hurdle uh, for them to get over.
1: Yeah. The stories in the book were were fascinating um, for for what they demonstrated, but also in looking at the, in the lives of the characters. Um, And so reading through it was, it was interesting to me because I was reading these memoirs for the first time. Um, I'd never even, um, really heard about them. And so it was an introduction both to the memoir and then to your analysis of the memoir. So that was really, um, that was really fascinating. Well, that's what um, I, was,
0: I was, that's one of the things I was hoping to do with the project is to bring more attention to these memoirs that have been neglected, not only in Latino studies, but also in African-American studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the neglected in um, Latino studies um, because there's such a focused, because you know they're they're afro-Latino memoirs and, in, and neglected in African-American studies, I think because we don't tend to read outside of our own tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we were talking about before in the, in the last question, there's just a lot of overlap between these communities, uh, you know, Afro-Latino communities and African-American communities, which you know, I can talk more about you know later.
1: <laughs> oh if you if you want, you could talk do you want to talk about it now?
0: Yeah, I just think these folks, you know, they don't, um, as this, uh, the chapter we're just talking about, uh, Mm -hmm. um, Vegas Sisters' Marriage to Joe Singleton, you know, indicates, um, you know, people don't live strictly in these ethnic silos. Um, And so that, but I think we do, I think we do our our students, our profession, um, a disservice when we teach and write about them as if they did live in these ethnic silos Mm yeah
1: yeah no i think i i agree i agree um and it it, because it can provide us with a more expansive idea of as you were saying like expand our ideas of what it means to be black right um with these different you know when you bring when you bring these different communities into conversation and into um relation because they are, are already are already in relation um you can see that
0: yeah, wow. and Vega's a, Vega's a, a perfect text to, um, to, that illustrates that, you know, she talks even more about how the, the dance and music culture in New York at the time, where you have these two communities uh, interacting uh, uh, in the same dance and music spaces. So mm-hmm. a very, very rich history uh, that she outlines uh, in that memoir.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you for that. Um, yeah I, th- I thought that too as as i was reading too i thought this is this is sort of bringing these memoirs back i think into our like public consciousness um to sort of i'm sure they had a life when they were published and to kind of revive them again and and have us reconsider them anew and what they were telling us about afro-latino identity then and you know what they can help us think about now as well um and so i wanted to ask too because you're very careful to say that uh you don't want to suggest that african americans are stewards of black identity Um, and you write nor do i intend to suggest that the relationship between african americans and other people of african descent is one of tutelage Um, and i thought this was really important because many times bringing african americans together with other black communities it becomes difficult to navigate this question of i i usually frame it as african-american hegemony um and so i wondered like how you're thinking about this um within within this project or how you navigate this uh possible issue
0: well look let me start with the uh, point that you made about african-american hegemony um lorja lorja garcia beña um, points out in her book um, translating blackness latinx colonialities and global perspective Um, She points out, she calls it hegemonic blackness. Mm -hmm. And she points out that it has its cons, and of course it has its pros. Um, So on one hand, it uh, dominates alternative uh, expressions and experiences of blackness. But on the other hand, it's strategically useful because it provides, as she argues, a lingua franca uh, that fosters global black diasporic uh, solidarities. And to the other part of your question, I think, The best thing to do when bringing African-Americans together with other Black communities um, is to acknowledge rather than minimize uh, the tensions that can exist uh, between and among those groups. And I think community and thought leaders have to do that work before, during, and after bringing those groups together. And what comes to mind to me is uh, recently a talk uh, in November, uh, Tanya uh, Kateri Hernandez, was at Clark University, you know, here in Worcester, uh, where I live and teach. And she was a uh, teacher at WPI, Worcester Polytechnic in, uh, Institute, but she was uh, speaking at Clark University. And she was discussing her uh, latest book, Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino Anti- Anti-Black Anti Bias and the Struggle for Equality. And uh, the talk in the Q&A session, I mean, it was just phenomenal. Um the open and the candid engagement between her and the audience, uh, and the audience included Latinos, Afro-Latinos, and African Americans. Um, it's the best talk I've been to in a while, and um, you know, and the group uh, continued. Uh, a small number of us continued the conversations that we we're having, you know, in that Q and A uh, afterwards at dinner. So, I think the work that uh, you know, Lorge is doing and uh, uh, Tanya is doing in our new book, we have to have more of that. Um, also you know it kind of comes to mind about bridging the, the tensions like we're talking about in the talking about um in the previous question you know i just finished teaching in my last term um, a course called african-american political thought and the students you know in that course they read and listen to an excerpt from a malcolm x's speech message to the grassroots and what they learn from the speech is that um, black people have more to gain by organizing around their common oppression Than they do about arguing. um, Than they do about arguing about their uh, ethnic, religious, and you know, social and political differences. And you know, going back to Louria's point, because anti-blackness is a global phenomenon, it becomes pragmatic, if not essential, for us to organize um, around one's common oppression. I think you know that's the message that the students take away from a message to the grassroots. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's. I love that that, that idea of, of teaching that, um, teaching that, that article and, or that, that speech, I'm sorry. And, and what you were saying about, uh, Lordia Penna, and I think in your book too, you kind of, I, I like how you give us these very like concrete examples of, you know, it's not just sort of, a you know, here, here's how to be black, right. It's, it's really a, like, you know, I'm trying to write this story and, you know, can, can you help me, you know? give me feedback and things like that. Um, so sometimes when you um, bring us down into like the everyday social relations of, the, of it, it becomes, not that, not that you can get away from the tension, but it, it becomes less about, you know, you're trying to put on me this, this way of being black and more about we're both trying to figure out the best way to, to help, help you tell your story. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: That, that collectivism is, is important. I mean, it's important to move forward, forward because it's a, it's a global struggle.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I wonder, too, you, you kind of answered this a little bit, but I had this other question of how you see the book relating to sort of the current moment in scholarly communities and the sociopolitical context. Um, and by that, I mean sort of the rise in Afro-Latin studies, the increasing acknowledgement of people of African descent, both in Latin America, but also like increasing black consciousness among, among Afro Latinos and, and just not even just the consciousness, because I think consciousness has been there, but just the visibility that it's mm. that it's getting. Um, and so I wonder just how you think about your book um, or your work in relation to some of these, these latest like sociopolitical events.
0: Yeah. So in the, um, the early 2000s, several several years before I entered my doctoral program, which which I entered in 2011, you know, Augustine Lamontes, he wrote an article calling for scholars to bridge the gap between Latino and African-American studies. And later, um, you know, I was, as, as I was doing my doctoral work, you know, I read that article and that really resonated with me. And my book is essentially just a response uh, to that call. And the Afro Latino memoir is uh, unique, I think, because it examines a, uh, you know, as we were saying before, a marginalized population in Latino studies, who are writing about, who are writing in, a marginalized genre in literary studies, and so I hope you know what my book can do is inspire more comparative uh, scholarship and more collaboration between scholars in Latino and African American studies, mm-hmm. and you know, as I was saying before, the people, you know, that I'm right about. That I write about, they didn't live in ethnic silos, and so trying to bring those stories and recover those stories for this next generation of of students, but also the next generation of scholars in uh, in Afro Latino studies, I think is important because Mm -hmm. those memoirs, as as you said, they had a life, you know, in their time, Um, and then we just they don't. Some of them don't get canonized, you know. Piri Thomas, of course. Of the four, five people that I write about, there are four chapters in the book. But of the five people I write about, uh, Thomas is the book that is canonical, right? So there's Carlos Moore's memoir, there's uh, Marta morena Vegas, uh, Raquel Cepeda, um, and Veronica Chambers, and so these these books have a lot to offer. But I think with this new this new wave of scholarship and interest in Afro Latino studies, I think these books are going to get um uh enough their shelf life is going to be renewed mm-hmm. so that, that's when I'm hoping people will pick up not just these texts but also the the other uh um the other memoirs that are out there because there, there's just so much there's almost there's more there, there are more memoirs out there than one can write about in one lifetime <laughs>
1: <laughs> no <clears throat> there's a lot of a lot of memoirs out there um, yeah and these are the memoirs you looked at were really really beautiful Um, and so you mentioned this before too. Um, you have a degree in creative writing and you know, the book is beautifully written. Um, and so you, you can almost see the, uh, the wordsmithing, um, and the care that went into you, you producing the text. And I wondered if you could share anything about your writing process, um, your practice of wordsmithing, writing inspiration, um, Yeah, I wondered if you could tell us anything about writing um, or writing the book uh, that you could share with us.
0: Well, I I think my writing process is fairly conventional. Um, You know, I prefer to write, you know, anytime between uh, 6 a.m. and 3 p.m. And I tend to line edit as I compose and I tend to um, revise each section of an article or a chapter and before moving on to the next section. And for me, uh, um, the cadence and the rhythm is really important. Um, so I often like, you know, read passages out loud, you know, checking for errors and, you know, the logic, the tone, you know, the rhythm, the cadence. And, um, and these are like some practices that I teach to my students too. you know, I try and get them to adopt some of these some of these practices as well. And uh, the text-to-speech function is really helpful, especially for catching typos. You know, you don't, and even though I do all this, I don't catch everything. And um, so a typical writing day for me, as I said, six to six to three, I can't really write after three. My mind is just not, you know, ready to write. Um, three to 10, um, that's when I'm usually like doing research um, Doing either reading and/or doing research, you know, finding texts that I need to read and annotate, and, uh, and, and or actually reading those texts and preparing the notes that I need to do the writing for the next day, and that's that's pretty much how a typical writer day uh, goes for me. As far as like the wordsmithing, you know, coming out of a creative writing, you know, background, you know, I specialized in in prose, uh, um, so fiction, short fiction, and and personal essay. But, you know, we also had to take courses in poetry. So this is that, that attention, you know, at the sentence level is really important for me. And I'm also at a, at a larger level, I would say a plain language advocate. So I tried to write the book so that it's accessible for the most part, you know, to undergraduates at two and uh, four year colleges because I spent a good amount of my um, teaching career in higher ed in the community college space and so each chapter kind of open up with a opens and closes with an introduction and a conclusion you know so students can kind of you know get the overview and the summary uh, quickly before you know going into the meat of the chapter and looking for specific details and the conclusion in each chapter kind of introduces the topics and the thematic concerns of the next chapter so the idea there is to like kind of build this narrative thread that pulls the re- reader forward through the text you know, from uh, from chapter to chapter.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, and so that, that was the um, last question about the book. And so the final question is, um, now that the book is out in the world, what is the next project you're working on or, or what are you thinking about? Um, you know, what activities do you have on the horizon or, or in front of you?
0: All right, so last year... Um, In 2022, I co-guest edited a special issue of the journal, The Black Scholar, and that issue focused on the concept of a post soul Afro-Latinidad, and so I'm eager right now to continue exploring that concept in more depth. So that's the project that's probably most immediately on the horizon, but right now what I'm working on, um, like in the moment, um, is a sequel to an article that I published in I think it was 2020, about uh emigration and ethnic cleansing motifs and afro short stories. And um, I focused on two short stories by uh uh Ray Bradbury and Derek Bell. Derek Bell being the father of critical race theory. So I've always uh, you know, been looking for the time to get back and write that sequel to that, to that article. So that's what I'm working on now. I have a stack of uh books over my desk that i'm looking over here to the side um, that i need to dive into over the break to kind of get that article started
1: wow well that sounds great so we wish you good luck with that work and uh, it sounds very important and we'll look for it when it comes out so um, we've got our fingers crossed for you (laughs) we can't wait to see it um so thank you so much for sharing uh with with us about your book. Um, I'm Reagan Gillum. I've been speaking to Dr. Trent Masiki, who is the author of the book, The Afro Latino Memoir Race, Ethnicity, and Literary Interculturalism, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
0: Uh, thank you, Reagan. Thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure.